Episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton, a show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. Now, the last few episodes of this podcast have been my Teaching from Home series, a series dedicated to supporting teachers who are working from home amidst the COVID-19 outbreak of 2020. However, this is a normal episode. Well, as normal as this podcast can ever be. And it features not one, but two very special guests in the form of Carl Hendrick and Paul Kirshner. But before we get to that, a quick word from our sponsors. Cue the fancy music. This podcast is kindly supported by Tez Resources. Tez Resources have created a home learning collection full of hand-picked free resources for teachers to use with children who are learning at home or to share with parents. Please search online for Tez Home Learning to find the collection and see how Tez can help you. You can also find this collection through the Tez Coronavirus Support Hub at tez.com forward slash coronavirus. That's tez.com forward slash coronavirus. And there'll be a link to that in the show notes. Do check it out. And if, like Tez, you're interested in spreading the word about your product, service, or event to thousands, tens of thousands, in fact, of the very best listeners in the whole wide world, then drop me an email at mrbartonmaths.com to find out about the sponsor packages available. And if you want to hear previous sponsor slots just to see the kind of thing that we can do on the show, then there's links to those in the show notes. We've had all the big names we have had. Open University have been on, Department for Engineering, uh, AQA, White Rose Maths. Get yourself among them. Anyway, back to today's show with Carl Hendrick and Paul Kirshner. Now, Paul Kirshner describes himself as an educational realist. He's also an emeritus professor of educational psychology at the Open University. And on a personal note, Paul is the co-author of a research paper that had a profound influence on my own teaching practice. And that paper was Why Minimal Guidance During Instruction Does Not Work. And it's something we discuss in the interview. Then we have Carl Hendrick. Now, Carl is a podcast favourite, appearing a few years ago with Robin McPherson to discuss their excellent book, What Does It Look Like in the Classroom? Carl is an English teacher and director of research at Wellington College. Paul and Carl have come together to write a new book, How Learning Happens, Seminal Works in Educational Psychology, and it is superb. So, in a wide-ranging conversation, we discuss the following things and plenty more besides. Paul describes not one, but two of his favourite failures and tells us what he learned from the experiences. We dive deep into the writing of and reaction to Paul's seminal paper, Why Minimal Guidance During Instruction Does Not Work. 
And following on from that, Paul responds to criticisms of his mantra that learning is a change in long-term memory. Then I asked Carl and Paul to each choose a paper from their book and describe why they think it is important for teachers to know about, and they choose two absolute classics. And then finally, we discuss educational research in general. What can cognitive science not tell us, and can you prove anything with research? Now, I actually have two other normal episodes that I recorded before the school closures, one with Mark Healy and another with Robert Kaplinsky. However, I decided to bump this episode up the running order because we touch upon Carl and Paul's thoughts about remote teaching and learning based on all the things they have read and researched, and I thought that might be relevant to listeners in this tricky time. Now, it'll be no surprise, because I say this all the time, but I genuinely genuinely mean it. I absolutely loved this conversation. I've been lucky enough to see Paul speak a couple of times, but never quite had the courage to go and say hello. Uh, As such, it was a privilege to talk to him and Carl in depth about areas of education we are all passionate about. Two very quick plugs before we start. As I mentioned in the intro, I've recorded a series of episodes under the title of Teaching From Home, where I interview teachers about their strategies, technology-based and otherwise, to ensure their their students are learning during the lockdown. You can find these episodes in the usual Mr. Barton Maths podcast feed. And secondly, and finally, my book, Reflect, Expect, Check, Explain, is out now and may well be the solution to any insomnia you are suffering during these strange times. Anyway, without further ado, let me introduce Paul Kirshner and Carl Hendrick. I really hope you enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, so Paul and Carl, welcome to the podcast, and we're going to dive straight in, Paul, with your maths speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Uh, My uh, favourite number is six, and the reason is it's because it's the first perfect number. I think after that, my next favourite number is 28, because it's the next one, uh, the next perfect number. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, that's about it. (laughs) <laughs> I'll tell you what, it's a good, strong mathematical start, that, Paul. I, I like that. Fantastic. Well, question number two, then. Uh, what was your favourite topic in maths as a student? OK, I'm glad you asked that. Um, I think my favourite, um, I, I studied, I did, I did that in, uh, in the United States. So I don't know if the terminology is the same in the, in the UK. But it was, uh, for me, it was doing proofs in trigonometry. Nice. For example, uh, proving the congruence of triangles and things like that. It showed to me that... Um, mathematics is not um, uh, um, a natural science. It's closer to uh, logic. It's closer to language. Um, it's uh, not an empirical science. And that's what I really liked about mathematics. At a certain point in my life, I was also a mathematics teacher for a short time, but I was a mathematics teacher. Wow, flipping it. I'll tell you what, you've surprised me here, Paul, because having had Carl on the show last time, I mean, Carl won't mind me saying this, his maths knowledge wasn't exactly up to scratch. So I was thinking we're going <laughs> to have something similar here, but I'm going to have to raise my game. This is very, very impressive. How long were you a maths teacher for, Paul? Um, well, I, um, uh, when I did university in the United States, um, I did a double bachelorate. I did a bachelorate in psychology, and I also uh, did a bachelorate in, in teaching. And uh, that was for maths, uh, biology, and general sciences. And then I taught at a middle school uh, in the United States. But I'll get into that later. 
probably in 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 one of the questions. Fantastic. Uh, and uh, it, it 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 was a very frustrating experience. I'll explain that why. And um, as they say, the rest is history. <laughs> Super fantastic. Well, your third uh, speed dating question, uh, Paul. What job would you like to do if you weren't involved in education? I would probably be either a cook or a carpenter. Uh, as a matter of fact, in a certain part of my life, I was a cook. I was the head of a restaurant. That's how I met my wife. I still cook uh, quite a lot. Um, it's a great way to be um, uh, creative. And um, uh, being a top cook uh, is quite a lot like being a top teacher. And maybe we'll get into that later. Uh, but um, uh, I, I like working. Uh, when you cook, you're constantly busy with... Um, uh, 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 percentages, you're constantly busy with volumes, uh, you're busy with uh, areas, uh, you're constantly calculating things in your head to get it done, and um, I like doing that, and um, that's why I also one of the reasons I love to cook. Fantastic, and you, you're a professional podcast guest here, Paul. You're teasing things coming up later on. I like that. Keep keeping the listeners oh. hooked. So that's fant okay. fantastic. That, I that, like that's it. That's something. That's 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 completely uh, by accident. <laughs> I like it. Fantastic. Um, Carl, let let me come to you. So first off, um, welcome back. And it's I was looking at this. It was December 2017 when you and Robin were last uh, were on the show to talk about you. You're wonderful, but what does it look like in the classroom? So I mean, it's a bit of a rubbish question I'm going to ask you, but what have you been up to since December 2017? Well, um, I, I, like you, Craig, I had a, a child. Yes. So I, I basically, at that point, I was just finishing my PhD. I did a Viva a few months after that, passed the Viva, had about six months of corrections. Around the same time, I think Paul asked me to to uh, write a book with him. Then my daughter was born in July. And then I just went into the maelstrom, as you, as you know, um i'm I'm a broken man i'm a shell of a man i think he's exaggerating a little bit he's a great um a person to write with i must say i really love doing that well i i so you know she she was born and um uh then i essentially made the decision that what i was going to do is kind of strip back mm. uh a lot of the extra stuff that i was doing so i just dropped some of the roles that I was doing at work and I focused on just being a teacher. Basically what I wanted to focus on was teaching, reading, writing and my daughter. Yes. And that's really what I focused on in the last sort of 18 months. And let me ask you, Carl, because I, I'm an, I, it's a cliche, but I'm permanently knackered all the time. That, that's one thing. Yeah. But, but the second thing is, I feel thicker. That, that I've, I've lost yeah. my sharp. I, I don't have it anymore. Like I'm, I'm struggling. Things are taking me a lot longer. Yeah. My writing's rubbish. I, I get midway through senses, and I don't know where I'm going with it. Like that's not just me, right? Are, are you struggling with this as well? And it's frustrating, yeah. isn't it? I think I think a lot of that is because when you've got a small child, you, you, you don't have long periods of time to really uh, focus and look at things. And I mean, I think the more I read, the more I come back to this idea of attention mm. and that dividend of attending to something for a long time, that kind of deep work. And when you've got a kid, it's an hour here, it's yes. a half an hour there. And so you're never, you're just kind of skimming through the shadows all the time, but that'll change, Craig. You know, we'll, 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 you and I will stumble out of this cave into the, into the sunlight pretty what soon. What a bunch of wizards. <laughs> 
really? Well, I guess I best come back to you, Paul. I mean, I was hoping just to have a moan with Carl all, all show, but oh, maybe I'll come no back problem. to you. We'll, we'll refocus. We'll refocus. So, uh, Paul, you, again, you've teased a little bit of it, but but tell us about your career then. Well, where did it all start for you, and how did well, you get where to did where it you all are? start? Um, <laughs> Sixty-eight years ago, I was born in the Bronx. Um, no, uh, <laughs> just going back a little far. I started out my um, academic career in the United States uh, trying to be an electrical engineer. And um, I did that at a semi-Ivy League university that really wasn't my style of university. I transferred universities and found that the new university that I was at in the one year that I had studied was uh, a year further than I was. So I had to um, uh, make a choice, and that was either to really buckle down and study or do something else. Well, as a hippie in that time, I chose to do something else, and I chose the... um, uh, uh, area that was the most like the natural sciences and that was psychology uh, it was behavioristic and so I did that psychology uh, uh, there and uh, also got my uh, teaching diploma as a math teacher and general science but as I said um, I kind of got frustrated and the reason was I was always myself a very good student and I never had problems understanding things and learning things and I was teaching science and maths the children who should have been able to understand what I was saying, and most of the class did, but there was always a group of children that no matter how hard I tried, no matter how many different ways that I tried to explain things to them, there was there were always children who didn't understand that. And that made me very frustrated, and it got me to thinking, do I want to do this for the rest of my life? Can I deal with this type of frustration? And so I decided to leave the United States for a year, and uh, as they said in that hippie time, to get my head together, and uh, that one year which started in May of 1973 I think it was the 11th of May 1973 um, has now been oh 47 years Um, uh, I came to the Netherlands um, I started working as a carpenter and then a cook in a a restaurant in a youth center Uh, I met uh, the woman who I've been living with since 1974, my wife and the mother of my four uh, children. Um, uh, I went back uh, to school, to the university, to study educational psychology. Um, I got my my master's in that, in uh, what's called text characteristics and learning processes, what you can do to a text to help people study more effectively and efficiently and learn better. Um, from that, I, after my master's, I went to an educational publisher because I had the idea with what I knew, I could uh, say, well, let's make quality our advertisement. And after being there for one or two years, I realized that advertising was more um, uh, their quality mm. and decided I had to get out of there and move to the Open University, which was dealing at the Netherlands, which was dealing with uh, learning at a distance, primarily at that point in time, in 83, um, uh, through books. And I had studied text characteristics and learning processes. So I was there, and I did all of the courses in maths, sciences, technical sciences, from discrete mathematics to programming in machine code and things like that. And slowly but surely moved my um, uh, focus from only working as an instructional designer to doing research on 
maths and sciences to doing research in educational psychology, became a uh, associate professor, became a full professor at three different universities, uh, visiting professor in two other universities. As they say, the rest is uh, history. <laughs> I'm still living with um, the woman that I fell in love with in 1973, who fell in love with my apple crumble at the uh, um, at the uh, restaurant, and have now uh, four children and two grandchildren. So, is that too long, too short, or <laughs> is that kind of like covering the whole? Uh, the whole base. That's All nice. No, I'm 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 a little intimidated by by that as a, as a CV, but it's uh, no, it's it's superb. And, and you mentioned that you mentioned earlier on, Paul, that, that cooking, uh, being a chef, was was a lot like yeah. teaching. Do you want to just go into that a, a, a little bit more? Okay. What, what did you mean by well, that? Well, what I say is a top chef has a, a deep conceptual knowledge and skills in uh, the tools of his or her trade, the techniques of cooking, and the ingredients for a uh, uh, making a um, uh, a good-looking, good-tasting, and nutritious meal. Mm. Now, a teacher also has a deep conceptual knowledge and skills of uh, uh, the tools of his or her trade. That's the pedagogy and different pedagogies. Uh, uh, sorry, that's the techniques. The tools, um, I usually do this in Dutch. The <laughs> tools are uh, things like books, uh, whiteboards, uh, um, uh, making use of powerpoints, mm. uh, uh, computers, things like that. Those are his or her tools. The techniques are the different pedagogies you employ, and uh, the contents are both the um, domain-specific uh, uh, knowledge of your area and how you can make use of um, certain aspects of your area to um, make the tools and techniques work better. I'll give you an example. If, if, if your technique is collaborative learning, if the tool you're making use of is a computer network for computer-supported collaborative learning, then the ingredients would be both the course that you're giving, mathematics, but if you choose to do that by giving students a task, it means also knowing how to devise a task it's complex enough to have uh, a group of people want to work on it together, mm -hmm. where the benefits of working together, that's so complex that the benefits of working together are higher than the costs of collaborating, of coordinating and communicating with each other. And if you do that, if you make are a good teacher, a top teacher, and you know your tools, your techniques and your ingredients, then you can make effective efficient and enjoyable or engaging learning in the same way that a Michelin three-star chef can make use of the tools, techniques, and ingredients, including spices and condiments, <laughs> to make nutritious, delicious, and good-looking meals. I love it. Well, fantastic. Superb. Um, now, Paul, um, before we start diving any deeper into this, well, one of my favorite questions to ask guests, whether they're teachers or professors or whoever they are, is to is to think about a favorite failure. Now, again, you can interpret this however you want. It could be an experience from your professional life. It could be from your, your former teaching life or whatever you want. But uh, what I'm interested in is is, is what went wrong. Why, why didn't it go to plan? But crucially, what did you learn from the experience? Um, well, I uh, actually don't have one favorite failure. I might have two. Perfect. Okay? We love that. Yeah, go for okay. it. Okay. Uh, the first failure was becoming a teacher. 
Um, I failed at that because I became frustrated um, uh, because of those kids that I, I, I couldn't reach. And um, because of that, it, it, it wetted my... Is that the past tense of wet? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm oh, sorry. I, my, my first language is now Dutch. <laughs> so um, I, I, I throw in a lot of dunglish. Into it. <laughs> right. um, uh, that wetted or wet my appetite for understanding um, how learners study and learn so that I could make it more effective, efficient, and enjoyable. Mm. So that was my fav- first favorite failure. The second failure... Um, was uh, not emigrating to New Zealand and going back to the university. Um, my wife, well, that, at that time, she was just my girlfriend. We traveled, we were going to travel uh, overland through India and then go um, uh, to Southeast Asia. Uh, you have to realize I was, we were hippies at that time. <laughs> and from Southeast Asia, we were going to go to Australia and then finally to New Zealand and to somewhere in the, in, in, in the outback of New Zealand to um, uh, try again maybe to become a teacher in that type of environment, in a more small, one-room country schoolhouse type of environment. And my wife said at the last moment, uh, I don't want to emigrate, I don't want to leave the Netherlands. Why don't you write a a letter to the university and maybe start your studies again there? Now, I wrote that letter, came back from India completely in white and completely emaciated, and um, there was a letter waiting for me on a Saturday that I arrived. Could you come on Monday and talk to the study advisor at the University of Amsterdam about starting a study there? I went there on Monday and the rest is history. I uh, got accepted. I had to do one course that I hadn't done in the United States. Um, I, I studied uh, uh, developmental psychology for half a year until they started a new department of educational psychology. I did that. And I combined what I wanted to do, and that was study first how people study and learn effectively, efficiently, and enjoyably, and to design, learn how to design instruction to help them to do that. Fantastic. Well, t- two, two great experiences and, and two great lessons there. That's superb, uh, Paul. Now, listeners may be thinking, well, where's Carl? We need a bit more yeah, of Carl exactly. here. You know. Um, <laughs> um, now, the reason I haven't asked Carl for his favorite failure or his speed dating is we did that back with Robin. So if people uh, want to listen to that, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But fear not, listeners, Carl is coming in very, very soon because... I want to um I want to talk before we dive into the book about um a paper that that you co-authored Paul and which was why minimal guidance during instruction does not work. Now I've I've definitely got some some views on this and it was quite a seminal paper for me and I know um well I suspect Carl has too. So before we discuss that I just wondered could you just give us a bit of a, a bit of background Paul into into the writing of that paper. Um did you did you realize when you were when you were putting it together that this was going to be an important piece of work and and how, how did it come together um, initially? Okay, the answer to the second part of the question was no. I had no idea that this would be the paper. I mean, when you're, uh, w- when you're studying psychology, there are certain, or anything, I should say, any area, you always have one or two or three papers that you say, wow, that's, that's, that, that, that's a paper. Um, wouldn't it be great to have written that? And mm. you realize, no, I will never write it. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. And so I had absolutely no idea that it would be the type of paper that people would come up to me and say, you know, Paul, I read that paper and it changed my life. Yes, yes. And I 
kind of like, whoa, I never realized that at all. So the answer to that part is no, I had no idea when we wrote it that it would have that type of reach. Uh, how did it come about? Um, I was at a conference with John, John Sweller, and um, there was some presentation that we were both out. I, I think it was a, a, a keynote speech, uh, again, dealing with discovery. And both of us had this problem with discovery learning. And John asked the question and got one of the typical BS answers that was normal. Um, and afterwards, I went up to John because I had met him earlier and I had long discussions with him about cognitive load theory. And I, I had a difference in opinion with him about cognitive load theory. Okay. And we had hour long discussions, really great discussions. And I said to him, you know, John, I think it's that, that people just don't understand certain things. And we got into this discussion about it, and it came to, we said, like, well, let's try to write a paper about it, about why um, um, inquiry learning, discovery learning, minimally guided learning, why it doesn't work. So we started working on this paper together, and while talking to each other, we were at another conference after that, and we were talking to each other, and uh, John said, maybe we should ask um, uh, Dick Clark if you'd like to be a um, critical reader mm. of this. Because Dick did great work on uh, media and methods. This 1983 article is, for me, one of those articles that I wish I would have written, um, uh, that type of thing. And so we asked him, and he said yes. Uh, I, I had met Dick earlier also. I knew him. Uh, and uh, he, we, we sent it to him. He read it. And he came back with this kind of like sheepish question from, I don't, I don't even dare to ask it, but could I be the third author here? And both of us said, yeah, no problem. Great. So in a kind of round robin thing, we wrote this paper. Uh, it was great because uh, Dick is nine hours from me earlier in uh, California. And John is nine hours later than me, than I am in Australia. So you could really do, in one day, you could go spend three, four hours working on articles, send it, someone else would get it, work three, four hours, send it, and you get it back 24 hours later, and it was completely revised. <laughs> so that was great. So we sent it in to educational psychologists, and we got a beautiful review um, uh, on, uh, 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 of it. And two of the reviewers were critical, but very positive about it. And one, I think I know who it is, but I'm not going to mention any names, um, uh, was completely negative and like that. And so I talked to John and Dick about it, and I wrote um, uh, Lynn Corno, who at that point was the editor, and the new editor, uh, Gail Sinatra. I wrote an email to Lynn with a CC to Gail, if I remember correctly, and I said, listen, uh, Lynn, um, it, we can make use of reviewer one and three and write, really make this article better. But if you want us to also attend to what article, what reviewer two says, I'm pulling the, we're pulling the paper back right now because there's no way we can do it. It won't end up the paper that we want and anything we do will never be agreed to. Wow. And yeah, I, 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 I it, it wasn't even, uh, we say in bravure. It wasn't this kind of thing like I wanted to put my mark there. It was really true. I would just pull it back and we'd go somewhere else because there was no way we could we could do that. 
And Lynn said, no, don't worry. Deal with those other two. Leave it to me. So we did that in a round-robin thing, uh, again, in, 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 in a minimum of time, and it got accepted. And the rest is, is, is history. I think one of the things that boosted it was the fact that uh, three groups of people decided to write a, re, uh, a reply to it. Mm. A group in uh, Rotterdam, uh, a, a group in the United States, in New Jersey, and uh, Diana Kuhn. So one group was um, uh, with Hank Schmidt. Um, one group was Cindy Amela Silver and her colleagues and Diana Kuhn. And they wrote a reply to it. And Lynn was good enough to say, these are the replies. Would you like to write a duply? It's called in Dutch a duplique, a reply to the reply. And we did. And because of the fact that it became a discussion, that means people who were on both sides of the question read it. And it just took off from there. Wow. Absolutely fascinating. And again, as I say, I've got a few thoughts myself, but let me just come to you, Carl, on this. And when did you first come across the paper and what kind of impact did it have on, on you? I think I actually read there, there was a an article in the AFT, putting students on the path to learning. Yeah. And so I read that. And this is, I, I want to say something like eight years ago, nine years ago, something like that, that came out. Yeah. Um, and then I read that and then read the paper. Um, and I guess the thing about it was that it was the first time I had ever encountered those views in the, the field of education research. I, like a lot of teachers, I'd gone years with really only hearing uh, the notion that kids construct knowledge together, Yes. Uh, that kids should be working in groups, um, the notion that teacher talking is inherently bad and you should limit it as much as possible. Um, things that, you know, the, the explaining of something uh, is sort of inherently bad. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of read it and then felt a sort of form of liberation in a way mm. and then managed to connect with the people. And I guess the, the thing about the paper is that it's, it's sort of... Um, well, there's a couple of things that are important about this paper. The first thing is that the paper does not, it doesn't say that uh, discovery-based approaches, that you should never use it. Mm. What, it. what it actually says is that it's ineffective if you use it with novices. Yes. Exactly. And, and that's, that's a, that was a key thing for me. And so people often conflate um, Paul's work and others in the field as being, well, discovery learning is terrible and this, that, you know, that's, that's really not the, the case at all. The other thing is that I think it just very elegantly and simply made the point that there's a sort of a, um, a sort of a conflation of the advanced stages of something with the underdeveloped stages of something. And so well, there, there's this sort of idea that, well, if you look at an expert, well, that's the way to do it. You know, mm. uh, look at Lionel Messi, look how he does. Well, that's the way you should do it. And, oh, that's inherently the wrong thing to do when someone is beginning with something. The, other, the last thing about it, I think, is that I had I had done a master's degree in modern and contemporary literature, and then I started to do uh, the kind of reading for a PhD in education, and 
I found that there was broadly speaking two types of research and education. One that was completely impenetrable and was sort of a, a love letter from one academic to another. <laughs> yes. Um, written in a kind of a code that very, very few people would be able to read. And then secondly, there was a, a, a style of writing that was inherently accessible and that was saying very complex things in a very simple and erudite fashion. And the thing that I noticed was that uh, a number of those papers were coming from a, a different field than one that I was used to reading, which is cognitive science. And I found, and then, and then around, not long after that, I read um, some of Dan Willingham's work, and then a lot of the dots started to join up. Exactly. So for me, it was, and just the last thing I'll say about that paper is one of the reasons why it's so widely read is because it's so readable. Yeah, it's the, it's it's the kind of thing that if you if you teach you know a year six class, if you teach. Uh, um, a-level English, if you teach physics, maths, whatever, anybody can read it. And I think that's also one of the great purposes of uh, conducting experimental research in education is that it has to fizzle down and have an impact at the level where it needs to be. So so writing stuff that's extremely arcane, obtuse, um, is, and then, you know, having four or five people read it and then charging X amount for people to read it again is, is futile. So that was sort of my experience with it. Yeah, it's fascinating that call. Yeah, I, very, very similar for me as well. When I kind of had my mid-career crisis, when I was questioning everything, and I it led to me writing my first book. It was one of the first papers that I I was directed to. I think by Chris Bolton initially, and yeah, it was. Uh, I must have read for that book maybe two hundred papers, and some of them were a flipping nightmare to read. I'd read them. Yeah. What the hell is this going on about here? And it just wasn't sinking in. And this was before I'd had Isaac as well, so I was reasonably kind of competent at that stage. I couldn't. When did you have that, Craig? When did you? You said you had this kind of crisis mm. in your career. Like, what, how many years were you into your teaching, and what uh, was the? I would say it was just around about two, between 10 and 11 years I'd been teaching. And it was when I, yeah. when I started off the podcast. So when, when I, and the, the problem was, um, I, I started interviewing people and I'd always ask them the question, um, how do you plan your lessons? What did your lesson planning process look like? And the, the detail they spoke, uh, the level of detail they went into and the reasons they did it, and they would cite like a, a paper. So they may cite this paper, or they may cite Dan Willingham's work. And I just started thinking, I'm just not aware of any of this. And then I, I went mm. down the rabbit hole. I read one paper and then I read uh, Why Don't Students Like School? And it just, it opened up the doors. And I, I had to question absolutely every, every, yeah, everything that I did. And it's, again, sometimes I think I wish I'd never started that because it's, it's really hard. It's, it's, it, mm -hmm. it's, it means facing up to mistakes you've made in the past and, and stuff. And yeah, but it was, uh, yeah, a, a similar story to, I think, that, that a lot of teachers go through that have, have, have been kind of blinkered to, to educational research, often through no fault of their own. As you say, some of it is quite impenetrable. But, yeah, papers like the, the Minimal Guidance one and, and Willingham's work, I think, really kind of opened the door to, to, to that. And, but, Paul, yeah. well, what I wanted to, to ask you is it's, 
uh, no surprise it's, it's a controversial paper um, yeah. and i've been i've been having a few uh, few exchanges so dr helen williams who's been on the show and um, she she lo- she loves a, a bit of an argument on twitter she's her and dylan william are often have kind of some kind of back and forth and i think you, you may have even swapped a few tweets with her in the past but um, i messaged her to say that, that paul's coming on on the show and are, are there any questions that you would like me to ask ask him now she sent me about 100 questions that would that would take up the entire show but I, i've, I've cho- chosen a, a select few and i think this is a really good one and that's about probably the most famous quote in the paper i think and that is that learning is a change in long-term memory and i i, I see that on lots of presentations and, and workshops that i go to I, and it's a it's a it's a really good way of summing up a key argument from the paper but one of the questions that that helen um, asked is how do we know that information is moved from working memory to long-term memory? Is, is, is it a useful thing to think about in a practical sense for teachers that learning is a change in long-term memory? Can you just talk us through that phrase, Paul, and what it means to you? Yeah, I, 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 my first answer would be, what's there to explain? Um, uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what, that won't cut it. That won't cut that, it with it. I mean, that's our, cogn- that's the, that's our cognitive architecture. We process information in a working memory and we store it in long-term memory. It's just that simple. Working memory is something that's very limited and uh, has a staying power that's very, very limited. And our long-term memory is virtually limitless and stays with us until we get Alzheimer's or something like that the rest of our lives. So if you've learned something, yeah, which means... At a later date, a later moment in time, you're capable of either reproducing it or making use of it or bringing it into your working memory to deal with new information or whatever. Yeah, that means you've done something because you're not born with a full fledged, completely filled working memory. You build it as you go along as you're learning, you're processing things in a short-term buffer and moving it into a meaningful and we know that since 1960-1963 with Archibald the psychology of meaningful verbal learning yeah you're moving it into a long-term buffer where you can make use of it so I really don't understand I don't understand the question I don't understand what's there to explain (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> it's that it, simple. It's an interesting one. I, I guess. mean, does, does, does she think that all of our knowledge is stored in our short-term memory? Does she think that we're goldfish? I think, I mean, I don't want to put words words in, in, in Helen's mouth, but from, from conversations I've had, I think it's more the fact that it seems a bit abstract it seems it seems to be like this almost like the switch that there's like it's a binary thing that you're in working memory so you haven't learned it and then whoop something happens and it's in long-term memory i think something happens you process it you uh, attach it to the schema schemata that are already in your long-term memory you uh, assimilate it into the schemata that you have you accommodate the schemata, talking in terms of Piaget, assimilation and accommodation, you accommodate the schemata that you already have if this new information doesn't fit perfectly into it. You're constantly building broader and deeper uh, schemata in your working memory, in, in your long-term memory that you can make use of. And there's nothing 
magical or it just happens. You process it and you process it by studying it in different ways and you access it by retrieval practice in different ways. And that loop between your working memory and your long-term memory in storage processes and increasing your storage strength on the one hand and then recalling it through retrieval practice in different ways into your uh, uh, working memory just makes the memory trace stronger, more resilient, and helps you remember it longer and makes it harder to forget. There's nothing all of a sudden it goes. It's not like we're looking at a board. One of my favorite um, cartoons from years ago was this mathematician who was in front or a physicist who was standing in front of this chalkboard with all these incredible equations on it and all of a sudden he says on the board it says and then a miracle happens <laughs> it, it's not like that and do you think is is it fair to say paul that because um again i, I have I'm, all these, i have all these 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 ingredients and all of a sudden it's a meal <laughs> <laughs> is it is it fair to say that, that this that this Sorry. applies um to all ages of, of students because um, helen's coming from an early years perspective of course here. so it's, is it diff is it different for really young students or is it is it the same principle the the, the the this principle is the same the difference is not in the age it's in the amount of knowledge, the, mm. the, the, the expertise. Um, uh, if, if you already have schemata, you, that's coming back to what Carl said uh, uh, about inquiry. If you already are an expert in something, it's your epistemology, your way of working to make use of inquiry to discover new knowledge. But if you know nothing about something, you have to build those schemata up so it's different. So a 50-year-old who knows nothing about quantum chemistry is still a beginner, but a, an 8-year-old who has automated um, the, the, the multiplication tables is um, uh, experienced with respect to that. So it's about the amount of expertise you have, the amount of knowledge, and not your age. I see. And that's, a, that's, a, that's, for me, a commonly made mistake People bring it down to age, but a 60-year-old novice is still a novice. And a 16-year-old or an 8-year-old who has a lot of knowledge in an area is approaching expertise. So it's not age, it's knowledge that does it. And that goes back to the, 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 the breadth and the depth of the uh, conceptual schemata in your long-term memory. And a beginner doesn't have that and has to build it and needs to be taught in a different way than someone who already has it. And that's an expert or an advanced learner. I see. Now, I can't promise that there won't be a like on your I when you wrote your paper. There could, be, there could be a reply from Helen to this podcast and you may have to do a reply back and it could go that way. But who, who knows? Well, well, um, who let knows? me let, let me just ask you before before we move on from this paper, I. I you dropped a bit another teaser before Paul that I, that I must pick up on here, and that's you said that um, you and John Sweller disagreed over something um, about cognitive load theory. Can uh, cognitive load theory is a recurring theme on on this podcast? I wonder if you could just tell us what what was the disagreement about? The disagreement was very simple. Number one, uh, John said that intrinsic load uh, originally was completely um, um, dependent upon the complexity of the task. 
And I disagreed with him because I said, as you get more expertise, the complexity decreases. What's complex for a beginner is simple, not easy, but simple for a uh, 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 an expert. And the reason is that complexity is defined as the number of um, novel or new information elements and the interactions between them. Yeah, I'll give you an example. Learning 25 words in English and in Dutch might be a lot of words. Yeah, so a lot of new things, but there's no um, uh, interaction between those words. Um, yes. The 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 the, the um, uh, uh, translation of cat to cot and of dog to hond have nothing to do with each other. So they're completely. Um, uh, isolated from each other. But if I want to make use in Dutch, and I learned it as a second language, of um, uh, those words, I have to know, number one, is it masculine, feminine, or neuter? Because if it's masculine or feminine, it has a different article than if it's neuter. But that means if it's uh, masculine or feminine, um, the adjective has a different form than if it's neuter. And if it's plural, it's gift different again. Wow. So those are only like three or four words, but the interaction is very great. Yes. Yeah. And the more you learn a language, the more those things are no longer complex to you and you can deal with them. So that was the one th- the first thing. So eventually, I won't say it's due to me, but John has now added to it that it's also dependent upon the expertise of the learner. I won't say I was the person that caused that, but I had discussions with him in my office in the Netherlands, in, in, in the south of the Netherlands, dealing with this point. The second thing that I disagreed with John about was I had this problem with germane cognitive load. Because um, germane, John said there was, in, well, John didn't say that. Two colleagues of mine actually added this to cognitive load theory, said, we have intrinsic load and we have germane load and we have extraneous load. And intrinsic was the complexity of the task and now the complexity of the task plus the um, expertise. And on the other hand, uh, they said if, if it's germane load, it helps you to learn. And if it's extraneous load, it hinders learning. And I had this problem, but how the heck do you define that beforehand? How do you determine if what you're going to be doing as a pedagogical approach will lead to extraneous or germane load. So the only way you could measure it was ex post facto. You said, well, we did this. They didn't learn. It must have been extraneous. Hey, we did this and they learned. It must have been germane. And I thought, yeah, that's kind of like a circular reasoning. And now John and I are now also on the same page with that. Also, thanks to Slava Kalyuga who John works with quite a lot in, 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 in New South Wales, and that we're back to the idea that there are two types of load. There's intrinsic load, and there's extraneous load, and the extraneous load is determined by the pedagogy that you use, and no more germane and extraneous load. So those were the two things we disagreed on, and that we've discussed, and... Um, that have led to subtle changes in thought thinking about uh, cognitive load theory. But again, I won't 
say that I was the reason, I was one of the people who talked to John about this. And things change when you come with good ideas and 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 get people to thinking back and forth. And that's led to also subtle changes in how um, John also and hopefully shortly the world thinks about uh, cognitive load theory. Fantastic. And I'm going to ask you both. The last question I'll ask you at the end of this conversation is: Is is there anything that you've important that you've both changed your mind about? But I wonder, Paul, just before we finally move on from from this paper, is there anything in the Why Minimal Guidance During Instruction Does Not Work paper that that you've changed your mind about in the years since it was released? Not really. Only that we also spoke about germane cognitive load in that, and as it as I said, it's a poor construct, and intrinsic and extraneous are enough. Um, uh, if I would have written it today, I would have uh, added that to it. And the second thing is um, that I wasn't, at the time that we wrote it, uh, aware of David Geary's thoughts about biologically primary and biologically secondary or evolutionary primary and evolutionary secondary uh, learning. And I think um, that would have been a part of the conceptual basis of the paper. I see. Fantastic. Right. Well, let's turn our attention now to your your collaboration, your book. Um, I've got it in front of me here. How Learning Happens, Seminal Works in Educational Psychology and What They Mean in Practice. So, Carl, let me come to you first. And why did you want to write this book? Because over the last, what, five years, maybe, there's been a real explosion of, of popular books about cognitive science that um, aimed at teachers. And so well, why, why write this book in particular? Well, I think probably for me, the thing that I was interested in was establishing a sort of um, a kind of a classic albums of <laughs> education research. And so Paul we were, always thinks in terms of music <laughs> and albums. That's why right. we well, I, I, so I, well. I, I, OK, I'll, I'll tell you why. One of the reasons why is and, you know, Paul, you were talking earlier about what you were doing before you teach. And I was um, a musician. So I kind of left school, didn't want to go to university, was playing in bands, managed to blag my way into getting a, a record deal and then found myself in this position where I had a record deal and I was we were sort of working on an album. And then a few months later, different people who I'd met were, were saying, oh, you should listen to this album, and listen, you should listen to that album. And within about, I'd say, within a space of about 12 months, I had discovered things like I, stuff like Van Morrison's Astral Weeks, Marvin Gaye's What's oh. Going On, um, stuff like um, the, the Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. You're naming them all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then I, I sort of had this thing where I realized, wow, if I had known these before I'd started to kind of write this album and and, and, and go down this path, I probably would have been in a lot better position and I would have, I would have learned a lot more. So I kind of, from that experience, and then basically what happened was we got dropped by the record label. <laughs> right. um, but the, the, what I took away from that thing was, yeah, there's, you know, if you're going into a specific domain or area of knowledge, it's really important that you know um, a lot about it. You don't have to agree with it or disagree with it. You just have to know a lot. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you're, just, you're just kind of flailing around. You're just kind of guessing. Um, and so I was interested in this idea of um, um, Paul asked me, he said, look, I'm writing this book. And the original title that Paul had was Standing on the Shoulders of Giants. Uh, 
Nice. So we started throwing back a few ideas on that, and then we kind of realized that that was a title that, you know, there might be a problem with that. Um, and then, Also because Umberto Eco had written a book. With yeah. Him. Right. <laughs> That's right, yeah. So so we, we um, yeah, we, we, we kind of thought, well, this would be a kind of a, the idea was that it would be a sort of a foundational text of here's where everything comes from. I was also quite attracted to um, Baudrillard's, uh, I think it's in Simulacra and Simulacrum, where he talks about everything in in the kind of postmodern age is a copy of a copy of a copy of which we've now lost the original. <laughs> and I was really interested in this idea. Well, what are the originals? What what are those kind of nodes in education research where things come from? Not that they're one hundred percent correct, but that they're hugely influential. Wow. And um, Paul was. Uh, when when you so you approach Carl with this idea is is that right? What what was the original yeah. vision you had for the book? Was it similar to what it's ended up, or did did it did it change no, in, during it, the collaboration? No, it's it's it was that idea, but by me it was born uh, from frustration again. Apparently, all of the good things in my life happened based upon frustration. Yeah, <laughs> um, um, I was busy with PhD candidates that when they were busy studying how to create good instructional designs so that people learn more effectively, efficiently and, in, and enjoyably. And I would say something like, oh, you're using prompts. That's kind of like adjunct questions from um, uh, uh, Ernie Rotkopf. They'd look at me as if they saw water burst into flame. <laughs> right. And um, I thought, I don't want to give anyone the blame, but all of these people that I'm dealing with, and I was talking to people about how they design their lessons, and I would say, well, do you give them organizers before you start if they don't know anything about the area? And they would, again, look at me like, what the heck is this guy saying? <laughs> I thought, these, these, these teachers, these PhD candidates, they're missing... Um, a basis in in in, in 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 their field as researcher or as teacher and how can I let them become acquainted with that in a in an engaging but in a non-threatening way so I thought we need the world needs a book okay it sounds very very uh, uh, haughty totty or uh, whatever the <laughs> word is uh, in, in English, high, uh, uh, high, highly, I don't know the word in English anymore. I could give it to you seven things in, in, in Dutch, but that doesn't help. <laughs> in any uh, event, um, this idea of a high, highly idealistic thing. Yeah? yeah. And I thought, I need to write this book. And um, I had uh, been following uh, Carl uh, on Twitter and the things that he was writing and that he was saying and publishing in, in on blogs and things like that. And I thought, I need a second author in this. And um, I thought Carl would be uh, the perfect uh, co-author. And that's what he was. So, again, from my frustration and the serendipity of seeing what he wrote on Twitter led to wanting to write this and wanting to write it with Carl. 
Fantastic. And um, I guess, well, if we go back to the music analogy, whenever I'm whenever I'm banging together a Spotify playlist, it's, it's a nightmare knowing well what not to include. That's always that's always the difficult part. So, so Carl, how did you decide what made the cuts um, in, in this book in terms of papers? Well, I imagine there were some tough decisions, were there? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, Paul is someone who is his thing really is looking at instructional design and so he had a he had a kind of a template for how it might work out um what the strength of the book is that he we're sort of two people at opposite ends of the spectrum um i'm a kind of essentially a classroom teacher you know i primarily see myself as someone who teaches in a classroom um and does research really something that's kind of it's it's kind of part-time i'd like it to be you know less part-time but it is whereas paul is someone who is really kind of thinking about things particularly in terms of he mentioned that phrase cognitive architecture um so so you're getting kind of two people who are uh, at kind of different ends of things so i was always just kind of thinking about well what what are things that are going to be practically useful for classroom teachers mm. so there was a lot of discussion about how is this you know if you were kind of teaching year 10 on a tuesday what's the point of you reading this how, how is it going to be useful so there were the kind of two positions that we uh, we thought about but yep. um th- there was a lot of, there wasn't really any um any disagreement i mean th- there's yeah. there's a lot of um there was a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor. There was a lot of stuff that we could have could have included, but it just would have been, you know, maybe may, maybe there'll be a, a second edition or something. But the, you know, when you when you get down to it, it's very is difficult to sort of whittle it down. Is that an offer? <laughs> <laughs> You've heard it here first. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> and because um, I, I really like I really like the structure of this the, uh, the book and um, so again for, for the benefit of, of listeners if they haven't snapped themselves up a copy um each chapter focuses on and correct me if I'm wrong at any stage here focuses on on one paper in particular and then it has why you should read this article then an abstract of the article then you're kind of that kind of deep dive um, into the article itself and then perhaps the most important bit conclusions and implications of the work for educational practice and then how to use the work in your teaching then a nice summary of the takeaways and then some further references and then some qr codes where you can dive a bit deeper and and see things uh, yeah go as far as you want with it so for me it's kind of you can access this as, as deep as you like. You can you can kind of skim through it and dip in, or you can take a deep dive into a particular area and, and follow through um, on, on all the all, all the papers and, and references that go from that. And um, was that, if I ask you this, Paul, was was that structure in place early on that this was going to be? You could access it at different levels, but this had to be also designed for essentially the busy teacher who yeah. was looking for some quick takeaways. Exactly. That, that, that was the idea behind it. I had I had written a forerunner to this with two um, young academics in the Netherlands uh, in Dutch uh, for primary school teachers. And uh, at that point, I decided for myself from um, what 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 do I want to be the takeaway? I want number one. The people to be the, the the people who read it, and those could be uh, uh, students at teacher training colleges. That could be Psych 101 or Ed 101 uh, students at universities. But that could be uh, teachers at uh, uh, the elementary and secondary level. 
Um, how do I want to, how do I think it should be presented to them that will make them want to dive more deeply uh, in, 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 into the original works and on the other hand that they also feel at the end it's not abstract and yes. I can do something with it. So it was kind of like you begin with why is it important? It's almost like an advanced organizer um, uh, that we do at the beginning and uh, Carl does great work in, in that. I, I, I love him for that. Then it's about what the article's about, that's more the, 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 the science in it. But then uh, immediately after the science, and you hope that people then understand what was actually done, it's, but what does that mean for teaching? And yes. what does that mean for you as a teacher? And what are the takeaways? And then we come with the um, references, but we also chose to put in a selected extra readings, but not only extra readings, but also uh, podcasts, videos, all with QR codes that are accessible to people. So if they want to learn more about it, they can do that. So we wanted to make it accessible from all different sides so that when teachers come together in the, in, 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 in the um, uh, teacher's room or the department room and they say, how are we going to deal with this? that one can say to the other from, well, I think we need to all start our lessons with an advanced organizer, or, hey, the PowerPoints that we're using, when I looked at it the last time, they're really not making use of the uh, uh, dual coding theory. They're actually really wrong if you look at it in that way. And that's the whole idea behind it, that it, 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 it can work on, with and on the learners at different levels. And I hope that we've succeeded in that. Fantastic, superb. Well, I'm I'm a big big fan of uh, big big fan of the book. Um, Thank but you. I wonder now to um, to give readers to again to kind of whet their appetite and hook them in a bit. I'm going to ask you both just to um, choose. It could be a favourite paper or one that you feel is particularly important, and just to, just to talk us through why you've chosen it and, and what the key implications are. So I'll come to you first, Carl, if that's okay. Well, what paper do you want to talk to us about? So the one I thought I would talk um, briefly about is. Bloom's Two Sigma Problem. Um, and I think this paper is particularly important today. Uh, it's interesting that we're, we're kind of in the middle of conducting a massive experiment on virtual learning at the moment <laughs> and how effective that is. And so Bloom wrote this paper in, I think, 1981, somewhere there, early 80s. And it was basically based on uh, two PhD students who had studied um, a bunch of, uh, they basically looked at learning under kind of three sort of broad conditions. Um, one where there was basically um, just teaching as, as is. The second one was where there was mastery learning was used. And then the third one was one-on-one -on -one tutorials. And his, what he found was that the one-to-one -one group tutorials, uh, the outcomes were sort of two standard deviations higher than regular classroom teaching. And so the two sigma problem refers to how can we scale up the effectiveness of one-on-one -on -one tutoring to a classroom situation. Um, now, he makes some interesting sort of observations in uh, the paper. Um, 
and sort of one of them, which I, it, it's quite, it's sort of a, this is one of those moments where you read a paper and you kind of, there's things that you had already been thinking but didn't quite know how to explain and then you hit on it and you go, oh, that's, that's the thing, that's what I was trying to say. And he kind of says that there's sort of, there's things that you can change, which he calls alterable variables and things that you probably can't. And he calls them, uh, I think, static or, or stable variables. So alterable variables are things like the quality of the teaching, uh, the home environment, stuff like that. And stable variables are things like the personality of the, of the teachers uh, or the sort of the socioeconomic status of, of the families. And his claim is that there's a, there's a synergistic effect in the combination of these variables. So uh, to kind of put it simply, one and one uh, can equal two, but one plus one plus one can equal more than three. And that the combination of sort of a couple of more elements produces an effect that's greater than their individual uh, components. So, you know, he says things like um, whole class instruction, you know, why is it so inferior to one to one on tutoring? And one of the reasons is that teachers are often getting feedback from uh, a relatively small sample of high achievers in the class. Um, and that's, you know, usually the ones who raise their hands. Uh, whereas in one-to-one tutoring, at every point, the learning is checked and an explanation and clarification is given if needed. Um, and so I think this is a, a, a very interesting question. And over the last 30, 40 years, the Two Sigma problem has been picked up by um, Silicon Valley or EdTech interests to say, well, you know, this is a, the, the Two Sigma problem can be solved through, techno- through technology. Um, which of course it can't that's really great uh, Carl what you're saying because um, if you think about it that way that explains why you should deal with things like cold calling on students or having them use um, their own uh, uh, little um, whiteboards and markers or exit slips and things like that so that not only those high achievers put their hands up but you get answers and retrieval practice by everyone it's a perfect that was beautiful i've never heard it said like that thank you and he, he he does talk about that he talks about you know cold calling is um it, that's something i first encountered through uh dylan william an assessment for yeah. learning sort of, sort of 20 years ago in his work around kind of 98 and then uh doug lamov made it sort of quite famous but yeah. bloom was talking about this in you know the sort of the, the early 80s yeah. and so i think it's it's what you know what's interesting about it is people now and it's interesting where you you we're all kind of a lot of teachers now are scrambling to kind of create virtual on-learning environments and there's all kind of conversations where people are saying well if you're going to talk to a class of 30 why can't you talk to a whole year group and mm-hmm. you know so on and so forth and i i think if i kind of move away from a kind of scientific view on things. I think that there's a, a, a kind of a that really great teachers. What they do is they create this kind of uh, electricity in a room. It's kind of like this kind of nascent sense of something's about to happen. And they do it through a combination of um, uh, being extremely passionate about what they do, having very high expectations for the kids. And I think it's, there's a kind of sense where they prime kids into doing things. And, and the really best teachers can almost approximate some of the features of one-to-one, on, of sort of one-to-one tutoring 
in a group situation. So I think that's a really, uh, it's a paper I'd never read before, and it was one of uh, Paul's suggestions. And again, when I read it, it was one of those papers where I thought, wow, this is really a seminal, you know, it has such massive implications. And it's one that I've been thinking about just this week, actually, very, very deeply um, in terms of uh, using technology. Can you just go a little bit deeper into the, the technology side of things there, Carl? Because th- this is, is, is fascinating. Now, as you say, we're, we're recording this towards the end of March um, 2020. So we're at what's potentially the start of um, start of God knows how many weeks, months of, of school closures. And as you say, teachers around the country and around Europe, around the world are, are having to adapt to this this, this new environment. Uh, we had Daisy Christodoulou on the podcast recently talking about her, her latest book about... Wonder um, Woman. <laughs> absolutely uh, teachers versus versus tech um why why are you um why, why are you skeptical that um that this can't be that the benefits of one-to-one tutoring can't be achieved by technology carl because there's no evidence for it uh, that's probably the, you know the main reason and you know that's quite harsh as well because there are certain things that are hard to capture certain things that are hard to prove uh, so i'd say the first thing is that around 20 years ago there started to be this kind of Silicon Valley narrative around education. Um, and the narrative was that education is, is in some way broken and that it needs, it needs, it's in desperate need of disruption in the same way that we disrupted the retail industry through Amazon, the same way as we disrupted Blockbuster and the cinema through Netflix, the same approach needs to be applied to education. And it's a really, it's a, an extremely bleak view of education that just sees it in terms of utility and sees it in terms of um, a, a cheaper, more efficient way of, of doing things. And of course, what we know is that uh, education is, it's really an end in itself. It's something that is, it, it, it's, it's, it's a relational in nature. It's something that is, when we think about the things that have had a massive impact on us, they're, they're often experiences in a classroom and so to 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 try to um to try to claim that education is in some way broken and the people have been saying this now for uh well in fact if you go back you find thomas edison um saying that the video will completely um he, he was talking absolute nonsense almost 100 years ago, talking about <laughs> levels of efficiency of video versus classroom teaching and so on and so forth. Um, and I, my view is that there are kind of outside forces with vested interests in relegating the role of the teacher to uh, sort of a, a delivery bot, and this should be resisted at all costs. And the other thing is that, again, if, you, if, you, if we go back to the science and think about cognitive architecture, um, it's it's to, to sort of expect that a student is going to go online and you see this from things like MOOCs and the rate of dropouts of, of those online courses to expect the student to go online and actively do things that they're not particularly that interested in is ridiculous. Lots of teaching is about trying to get kids to be interested in things they're not naturally interested in. And so if you put them online and you give them uh, infinite amount of apps and infinite amount of, of the Internet, then what, then, then what are you going to get? You're going to end up with kids who are distracted, unable to concentrate, um, only interested in things to the level of which they are relevant to themselves or to, to which they can be entertained by. 
there's a sanctity to staying with something, to concentrate on something, to have the space and the time to think clearly about things, to read great literature, history, problems to be solved. And we are the gatekeepers of that. Teachers are the gatekeepers of that. And we need to fight to create that space for children to be undistracted and unhindered by the candy of technology. Well, that's a brilliant, brilliant answer, Carl. And, and just before I, I move on to Paul's choice of paper, just I, I, I have to ask you this. I mean, it's, it's a little unfair because we're only on what day two of, uh, of of this this new situation that we find ourselves in of schools being closed and teaching from home at the time of recording. And um, knowing what you know, Carl, and and all the things that you've read, um, how? Uh, essentially how are you teaching your kids um remotely uh, is there any anything that you are doing in particular that you think is important based on what what you know about how students learn i think w- one of the thing is that is simultaneity so if, if you have a kind of a timetable class even what i think is useful is just checking in with them online at the time that you're meant to actually be with them because when when there's no deadline on things or no sort of imperative for you to do it, then invariably things will get will get pushed off. So what I do, I think, is what I found useful is all of this is highly dependent on your audience. So when I'm working with, so I, for example, today I was doing some poetry with um, some six formers. Um, smaller sets of about 12 we went online I had a poem on on one note and I was kind of annotating the poem and talking them through it and then stopping and asking them questions the kind of way I would kind of normally do things now these are highly motivated students you know they're they're highly um, they're they're primed to use this in a particular way Um, but then I think when you're working with with younger years it becomes a lot more difficult because, you, you know, there's obviously larger groups and there's more of a temptation for them not to really focus on what they're doing and so on and so forth. But I think probably one thing that's positive is uh, I see lots of teachers kind of uh, recording very good explanation of things. Mm. And I think that's that this is where, you know, Paul's an expert in instructional design. And I think those principles about explaining things well and clearly and doing so with the cognitive architecture of the mind in mind uh, those things i think will 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 be good but i suspect what you'll see within a few months is teachers and more importantly students kind of desperately waiting to get back in the classroom i think they'll be they'll just get fed up with um sitting behind a computer all the time and again the the, the how patronizing for people to say to students, well, you're, you know, you're 14, so therefore the only thing you're interested in is in a phone, so then we should make content that you can only read through a phone. How patronizing to think that a 14-year-old can't listen to someone talk about Wordsworth or talk about history or talk about an elegant mathematical equation and not be arrested by it and not be fascinated by it. What low expectations we've got of kids that we think, well, they're kids, so therefore we need to kind of do Shakespeare through text messages and, and so on and so forth. So I think I think you'll see a renewed enthusiasm for the sanctity of the classroom. And I think you'll see, uh, you know, even just simple things like if you want to get one thing that doesn't work at all, obviously, is if you want to say to kids, right, can you discuss this in pairs yes. for five minutes? You, you know, that's that's very difficult to set up through technology or monitor or, you know. So I think to go back to that, that idea about creating that kind of effusive, electric, enthusiastic 
you know that 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 feeling that you have when you're in a room and you think something's happening here something interesting is happening here that's difficult to to uh, recreate and I, I as i say i suspect we'll we'll come back to the classroom with renewed vigor that's fascinating and and Paul, just just before I ask you to to talk us through your choice of paper, and this is a little unfair, I'm springing this on you as well, but would you, if we've got tens of thousands of teachers um, li- will be listening to this, well, would you have any ad- advice, general advice or pointers for them to to convey their message, their explanations, their their teaching as clearly as possible in a, in this remote online environment? A- any principles that we should be bearing in mind from 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 all your work? Well, I, I could think of a, a, of a few. I mean, you're, you, this, this is kind of like a, um, uh, off the top of my head. <laughs> but um, number one, don't think you can do everything uh, that you normally do in a classroom, that you can do that online. Um, uh, uh, keep it short. What you Normally you have a 40, 45-minute, 50-minute period. Try to keep it uh, um, a bit shorter. Don't try to do too many things. Uh, make sure that the students... Um, uh, know exactly what's expected of them. Um, it's normally f- normal for us as teachers to know what we expect of the students, and students get those cues in the classroom situation, but now you have to make them explicit. Um, prepare students better for classes than you normally do when you're teaching face-to-face. Um, uh, uh, if you're going to give tomorrow... Uh, a, a lesson about A um, uh, the day before uh, give them something that will refresh their memory with what they'll need for your lesson on topic A tomorrow and then after you've done it check whether they've learned it through electronic exit slips or, or, or whatever um, realize um, that you have to help them not only learn and remember, but also not to forget. Mm-hmm. Those are a couple of the things that I would say. Um, uh, realize that you're not um, uh, copying what you normally do in a classroom in this new and very strange situation. Got it. That is smart advice. Thanks, Paul. Well, now let's 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 have your choice of paper, then, Paul. Well, what what are you going to share with us, and why why have you chosen it, and what are the implications for teachers listening? You know, this is like choosing between my children. (laughs) (laughs) Which child would you um, uh, sacrifice to the gods? Yeah, they they are Um, the stakes. uh, Yeah, this is that this is really hard. Um, uh, I'm usually someone who can't come up with one. I usually come up with two or three. But in any event, uh, number one on my list, and I said it earlier, is um, uh, David Geary's uh, article on biologically or evolutionary primary and secondary uh, learning. Um, the idea that uh, we, have, we, have, we have a lot of people who, who say uh, children uh, are young, um, uh, they're um, uh, inquisitive, um, they should learn. Uh, uh, only by playing and things like that. And David Geary lets us really understand what we learn and what we can do in a primary way through experience and play. And that's the things that are really necessary for our survival. 
like communicating with others, forming relationships, things like that. And he says there's another type of thing that are culturally dependent that have nothing to do with our evolution as a species, that if you can't do it, it doesn't mean that you're going to die. Because in the first case, um, if you if you don't um, do it, you're going to die. I mean, if you can't recognize your parents or understand who's in the in-group and the out-group, um, that's not very good for your evolution. You'll probably end up dying and not having offspring. But things like math or writing or reading, those types of things, those are culturally determined. They're actually six or 8,000 years old. I mean, um, writing... Um, comes is, is like from 6,000 BC cuneiform. Before that, we didn't have that. So it's in, in an evolutionary history, we didn't really need that to survive as a species. And understanding what the difference between those two are and that they mean that you learn in different ways is for me really very, very important. It's, it's um, fascinating. It's, just start, if I can just ask one question about that, Paul, because I'm, I, I, I've, I read a fair bit of, of Geary's work um, again when I was having this mid-career crisis. One <laughs> bit I, one bit I struggled with was, was, and I, I can only speak from a, a math, maths teacher perspective here, but um, where, where kind of problem solving fits fits into into Geary's distinction? Because I've, I've read some interpretations that, that suggest that problem solving might be biologically primary. We might be, we might have evolved to be able to to kind of naturally plot our paths from the start of a problem to the end of the problem but from a a maths teacher's perspective i've always been of the view that problem solving is quite domain specific and definitely tied tied to knowledge what's your take Uh, exactly the the same as yours but that's also the same as geary's um if you look at it he says um you you develop a type of folk psychology a folk biology a folk physics And those are things that kind of say, well, if I see something rustling in the bushes, I can do one of two things. I can flee or I can stay. And if it's a rabbit, there's no problem. But if it's a tiger, I have a problem and I'll probably get eaten. So we have a a certain way of solving that type of problem, which are good, which is good for our, um, uh, 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 evolution, uh, begetting offspring and things like that. But within mathematics, you need domain-specific knowledge. Um, We solve problems through trial and error. And if we do it wrong, it can have repercussions, yeah, and heavy repercussions, like if you eat that berry, you might die. (laughs) And those types of, of, of things are very primary. But that deals with your substantial being. Um, something like mathematics or reading or writing that's completely culturally determined. And if you let our heads deal with that, you're um, confronted with a myriad of possible solutions and solution strategies, which you can't deal with. We don't, uh, we've gone as far as saying we really don't have a central executive. But how we learn is determined by our long-term memory, Helen. Um, um, You'll get me in trouble here, Paul. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's your problem. My number. Um, you, uh, uh, um, uh, a central executive, without the domain-specific knowledge, goes through a trial and error process. 
and there are quite a number of different permutations and combinations, which um, is much larger than our working memory can deal with. So you need that domain-specific knowledge. You have to, Geary uh, says at a certain point, you have to suppress the biologically primary um, uh, approach that people have, that playful trial-and-error discovery way, because when you're dealing with um, a culturally determined knowledge, um, you need to approach it in a completely different way. So with that respect, you and I are on the exact same page. And Geary also. That, that's fascinating. And I, I apologize, Paul. I, I, I kind of took us on a bit of a diversion, so I just wanted to no ask problem. you about problem it's solving. Your, it's your well, podcast, not mine. <laughs> was, was there anything else on, on Geary's that you wanted uh, you wanted to no, say? No, that's, just, just uh, that's for me the most important thing. Fantastic. Yeah? And if I had to choose a second and a third, I would say, well, Sonella's work on, Sonella's work on cognitive load and Badley and Hitch about information processing. Because they're all, for me, those are maybe the three seminal works as a cognitive psychologist. They deal with how our cognitive architecture works, how we inf- process information, and what that means for learning and the design of learning environments and situations. Fantastic. Superb. Um, well, I, I want to um, just kind of steer us towards the end, just with, with a bit of a, a general discussion about educational research. And I'll ask you this first, Carl, if, if that's OK. Um, I certainly have, have got the impression through conversations on this podcast and, and also Twitter and, and conferences I attend and so on, that there's there's definitely been a, a general increase in interest in, in research amongst practicing teachers. Um, so I guess my, my question to you, Carl, is, is, is why do you think that's the case, if you do agree with me? And is, is it definitely a good thing? Yeah, uh, it's definitely a good thing that teachers are more informed. Um, when I think back to when I first started teaching, and, you know, this is not a, a, criti- a criticism of ITT providers. I think it's very difficult for those training teachers. Um, it's, you know, you're, you're given a, a whistle-stop tour. When you finish your degree um, on a PGC course, um, but I think it's 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 only a good thing because the more evidence you you're aware of, the more research that you read, the more it, it, one of the curious things about this is, and sort of from having the last ten years reading as much as I possibly could from different fields, there's a, a curious thing that happens in that you. It, you, it, the actual opposite happens of what you think would happen in that you actually don't become more sure of anything, you become less sure. <laughs> yes, yes. You become more confused and more doubtful, and a good thing too, because education, research, and evidence is not about certainty. Uh, it's a, I think it's about humility. It's about being humbled to be wrong and to, to, to be prepared to being wrong, and everybody should be open to being wrong. And when they are presented with um, disconfirming evidence, compelling evidence, they should change their mind. And it's, I, I find it very interesting. You, you know, you've mentioned this a number of times, Craig. How you, you, you talk about it as a, as a sort of a, 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 a kind of a mid-career crisis. I think it's more of a, a kind of a mid-career uh, redemption, or <laughs> a, a, rather a mid mid-career catharsis, because. Um, the fact that you know you're somebody who is following the evidence wherever it goes, regardless of ide- ideological principles or or anything else, 
leads you to um, a particular kind of area. The thing about education research is that it, you know it's broadly kind of three or four main areas. It's a bit of philosophy, it's a bit of sociology, uh, it's a bit of anthropology, and latterly psychology. So what's happened, I think, in the last 20, 30 years is that some of the findings in cognitive psychology have become too loud for the gatekeepers of education research to ignore, and, th and they are traditionally philosophical assertions. Mm -hmm. And so you've got this kind of noisy neighbor with um, extremely compelling evidence. Um, I mean, you, you look at the science of reading, for example, that's one area now where there's beginning to be um, this idea of uh, what Hirsch calls a, a kind of an independent convergence of agreement. In, and, and if you look at any other field, that's how it works. You kind of have these outliers and then you, you, you people kind of gradually agree on, on, a, on a set of principles. So I think we're kind of moving in that direction. And um, but for me, the most significant element of it is that you now seeing many, many teachers being empowered to question dogma, to question things that are, you know, like think about it, Craig, when we started teaching, what was what was the sort of the, the kind of pedagogical zeitgeist? It was essentially that you must have group work in your lesson. Yep. You must yep. not. You must not talk. I think one time I was thought. You know, you talk longer for an eight minutes in the lesson. Therefore, it's not an outstanding lesson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You had you had this idea that um, you needed a whizzy starter. You needed an eight-part lesson plan. You needed differentiation. You needed to. You need to have three or four different lesson plans for all the different type of learners in your classroom. It was yep. the assertion that that students are more dissimilar than they are similar in how they learn. And we know that that's simply not true. So teachers being empowered with that evidence allows them, I think, to in, in the first instance, to just get rid of a lot of guff and nonsense and say, I don't need to waste my time attending to this stuff that's very ill-founded. And then the second stage is they can really start designing learning and designing instruction in a way uh, that actually will empower their own students. It's fascinating that, and it's, it's funny you should say that, Carl. I was I was looking through an old PowerPoint just to, I was trying to find something um, on my computer the other day, and I dug out an old one. Must have been from oh god, maybe ten years ago now. And on the top of it was, do you remember, do you remember pelts? Those personal oh god, oh god, oh my! And, I, and again, it took up. I, I just remember I was thinking to myself, how much time did I spend trying to shoehorn in just nonsense? What what was essentially nonsense just to tick this bloody pelts box? And I've and, the, about yeah, those. and the students were, you know, if they were learning anything in that lesson, it was because it was in spite of what we were doing, That's as right. opposed <laughs> to because. Of, and you know, the, the, the sort of I, I look, I, I was digging through some stuff recently. I was looking, I, I was looking at stuff. I think I was looking for a lesson plan or something, a for, like a pro form, and I found one from, oh, I want to say eleven years ago now, and it was just, I, I, honest to God, it was just horrific. It was. So it was it was a seven or eight part lesson plan in a 50 minute lesson. Uh, <laughs> yes, just yeah. like, you know, horrific stuff. But we were all, Craig, we, we were all doing this thing of we would teach a lesson in a way that the students liked and that we liked. And it was sort of generally, I'm going to explain some stuff. Then we'll have a chat about it. Then you can practice and I'll check whether you've learned it. That's basically it. Mm. And that really is 
dependent on the, the sort of knowledge of the teacher, the relationships that he has with the students, and so on and so forth. And then we would be observed. And all that would go out the window, and we'd design this all singing, all dancing, beach balls flying around the classroom, nonsense <laughs> lesson. For what? You know, be, uh, like, what were we thinking? What were no. we... I, 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 there's, a, there's a great book or a blog to be written about those days. I remember uh, the... So, and again, someone who... We talk about having that mid-career crisis and changing. Uh, our, our good friend David Dida, he 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 has taught what I refer to as the worst lesson of all time. <laughs> and he told me, and you know, he's open about this, that he taught a lesson once many many years ago, where he, in an attempt to teach his class about the circular narrative of Inspector Calls, took the class out to the playground, got some hula hoops and got them to do hula hoops to show them that the, that the narrative is circular. <laughs> nice. <laughs> now, what, what were we doing? I know. What would, and, you know, and, and got an outstanding uh, grade in lesson yeah, observation. Course, you know. Oh, look at the kids. They're so engaged. Oh, look at them. They're, so, oh, they're loving it. They're, they're absolutely loving it. What were we doing? I know, and it went on a while, though, didn't it, Carl? That's the thing. It wasn't just even like a year or a couple of years. This was the it dominated my my early teaching. And, yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. And let me ask you, Paul, um, on this, um, as as somebody who was um, kind of separate from from teachers, you're 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 not not a teacher yourself, but a, a researcher. When you, were you aware that this kind of bad practice was happening, and was was that frustrating for you to, to oh, find? I was that definitely you, you... aware of, of it. I mean, I I, I was in, within groups and societies that thought that everything should be problem based, everything should be inquiry, uh, children should construct things. I mean, in nineteen. 91 in my thesis and earlier in a uh, in an article I wrote about the fact that we're looking at learners as though they're just uh, a homunculus homunculi of 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 of, of full-fledged scientists mm. and that the um, epistemology of the learning of of the uh, of the domain should be the same as the pedagogy of it. So I was quite aware of it. I was actually brought up in it. Um, I was a child of the Sputnik uh, um, generation, in which in 1956, um, the, the Russians, or actually the Soviets, launched the Sputnik, and all STEM courses in the United States changed to problem-based, research-based um, the um, uh, BSCS, Biological Sciences Curriculum Study, Chem Studies, uh, Physical Science Curriculum Studies, PSSC, they were all based upon, we have to have a pedagogy that's the same as experts. So, I mean, I was taught that way as a student, and I found it very strange. Then I approached it as a researcher and was dealing with people at the Open University or wherever who were, de who were trying to um, uh, make use of that type of pedagogy. And I said, yeah, but these people are studying at a distance on their own. We have to teach them. Yeah, It's not just we give them a book and let them discover it themselves. So I was very much aware of those types of things and thought uh, there has to be a change. We need to change this. We can't go on like this and make education that people...
can learn from, and we've seen from the PISA results, that it has led to a downgrading of the knowledge of our students. And, and when you when you speak to John Sweller or your other friends in, in uh, fellow professors and so on, is is there kind of a is it is it a relief now that this stuff has finally broken through into mainstream teachers that they're talking about it? Is is relief the best word to, to um, sum it up? Or what what are the feelings? Uh, relief, not when I'm talking. I mean, when I'm talking to John and 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 and, and my professorial colleagues, we talk about other things. It's a relief for me when I give a presentation, it's something like research ed, or I go to a school and give a presentation, and teachers come to me afterwards, and they say, thank you, Paul, I thought that I was crazy, that I was the <laughs> only person who didn't agree with this absurd way that our school board, or our principal, or a headmaster, or whoever it was, thought that we should teach. You've now firmed my thoughts about what good teaching is. All of these years, the people have taken away from me my right to be a teacher who wanted to me to be a guide on the side as a help to my students. No, I'm a teacher. I have knowledge. I know how to teach. And I've been frustrated in, 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 in being allowed to do this. And you've now given me the, the cannonballs that I can shoot back at quacks that are coming and and, 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 and and proselytizing all of this absurdity, I now know that I'm not crazy. And that's the type of thing that, that, that makes me enjoy what I'm doing and gives me the feeling that we're going in the right direction. Because more and more of these people are not challenging me when I say these things but more asking me, how can I implement it better? Or, thank you, I get emails from my, the head of my school wants to do this. What can I say to him or her that will convince him or her that, 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 that he's wrong? And these types of things, the, 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 the agreement of, from the field is incredibly, I don't know what the word is, it, it gives you a good, warm feeling that you're going in the right direction. Fantastic. Uh, fantastic. I'm going to ask this question to both of you. I'm going to come to Carl first. And th this book is uh, th that you've written is, is obviously full of, well, as you describe yourself, seminal works in educational psychology. I wonder, is, th is there anything that educational psychology or, or cognitive science can't tell us about what it makes to, 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 to either teach students well or be a good teacher or for students to, to learn um, as well as they can be? Is there anything missing? I'll go to you first, Carl. Oh, okay. Yeah, there is. There's a lot missing. Um, um, it's funny. There's a really good analogy um, that I read recently from Dan William, where he makes the distinction between the, the basic and applied science. And basic science, referring to, um, he, and he talks about something like, for example, architecture. So the basic sciences w would be the physics and materials, and the applied science is architecture so and, and and that the latter draws on the former to sort of help you predict whether it will stand or so on and so forth but it can't tell you what a, a, a an aesthetically pleasing or a successful building looks like so you have um the, the mechanics of a car uh, 
and the uh, and the knowledge about that, but then how you drive the car is a whole different ballgame and what you do with it. And so I think in, in many ways when we talk about education research, we're kind of talking about outliers in, in many respects. Like and a lot of the things that you see people focusing on, I, I see a lot of people on social media and other places going with thing. And I often think to myself, well, if you if you ramp that up to the maximum effect that it can possibly be, it's still only going to be a small thing compared to a teacher who's got strong behavior management or a teacher who's got a very, very sharp kind of subject knowledge and is good at explaining things. And also, the, the other thing about all this is there are those teachers who have never read any education research whatsoever. And they are outstandingly brilliant teachers and have been so for 30, 40 years. So you can't say that about other fields. You, c- you couldn't say that about medicine or dentistry, mm, for example. Yes, yes. You can't have it. You can't have you, you can't be a successful dentist and have never read any research or be trained in it. So what what I think is really important about particularly cognitive science is that it evidences a lot of the successes that are already there. One thing I find fascinating is. There's a number of kind of teachers I know who are, you know, absolutely amazing, incredible teachers, people in their 60s. And they'll be kind of listening to me talking about something or we'll be, you know, watching a talk or we'll be in department or listening to something. And there'll be stuff about cognitive load theory or the limitations of working memory. And they'll just go, there you go. That That's that's what I've been talking about. That, exactly. You know, every everybody knows that, you know, and you think, yeah, so. Uh, and and they're the very people who th- th- have been confounded by all of this guff in the last, you know, however long it is. And so they they see stuff that talks about the architecture of the brain. And for them, they often refer to it as, well, that's common sense. Mm. And that's an important role for science as well, is to evidence things that work effectively and provide reasons and theories and explanations of, of why they do. Um, so the, what was the question again? Can science... Can, um, is there anything missing? Is there is there anything that the cognitive science or, or edu- um, educational well, psychology well, doesn't tell us? Curriculum. Science, mm. Cognitive science can tell you what to teach. It can tell you mm. how to teach, but it can't tell you you know what's on there. Um, there is an argument to say that a, 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 you know a poor curriculum taught expertly is worse than a bad, a, a really good curriculum taught poorly. Mm. So I think there's that element to it as well. And then there's there's the whole other side of things that in a kind of a progressive sense and Martin Robinson's really good on this there's lots of questions about the numinous about the liminal about the things that are difficult to pin down or to to explain um, about teaching um, we're still uh, debating what you know exactly what makes it think we're a lot closer I think than we were but there's there's so many different confounding variables um, that it makes it extremely difficult, but stuff like what we teach and the the purpose of teaching, what's the point of it? Is is the point of it, for example, to prepare people for the workplace, or is it an end in itself? Is there a, an intrinsic value in kids teaching Shakespeare, for example? Now those questions are extremely important questions in education, and they require a different toolbox. Would, would, would your answer be the same, Paul? Do you think this is there anything missing? That, that is there anything that cognitive science or educational psychology can't tell us? Um, I, I approach it. Uh, 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 I agree with Carl. 
So it's this it does is it meant as I I don't agree, but I approach it differently because I myself um, uh, 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 I'm a minimal teacher at this point in time, especially as a retired uh, uh, professor. Um, what it doesn't tell us is it doesn't tell us what we must do. It tells mm. us what we can do, um, what might work under what conditions, with what type of learners, for what type of subjects and why. It can inform us as to evidence on what works or what can work, but it can't tell us what to do. It's not um, it's not directive in that um, uh, respect. Uh, it can't tell you what you must do. It tells you what you can do. And then it's up to the teacher to bring all of the evidence together, understanding what the evidence is, where it come from, comes from, why certain things work in certain situations for achieving certain things. And as a reflective practitioner, to make use of all of that, to design a good learning experience. It's not like if you do this, then you get that. That's why I use the word evidence-informed and not evidence-based. Exactly. Um, it informs us as to what we can do to achieve certain ends. It doesn't tell us what we must do to achieve those ends. And that's what I would say, that's what cognitive science does not tell us. Fascinating, fascinating. And final question just on this before I ask you both to, to, to do a, a reflection. Um, and it's a bit of a kind of, well, it's, it's a funny question. And it's, can you prove anything with, with research? And, and the reason I ask this is um, when I first kind of went through this mid-career crisis and I, I first started reading educational research, I'd read a paper. Let's say, for example, it was, it was, it was your paper, Paul, that we referred to before, the yeah. minimal instruction paper. And I think... Oh, fantastic. Here we go. That's the answer I've been looking for. There we go. And then I'd read another paper that would argue the opposite point. And I think, oh, flipping it. Can't, can't there just be a single, <laughs> like, coherent no. narrative that I can follow? And um, now that we've got teachers more engaged in research, is, is the next level up to, to kind of be more research informed in the sense that you should be able to judge the quality exactly. of, of different research and that's that's hard to do isn't it because there is this danger that somebody says one thing and then somebody quotes a paper that says the exact opposite and then then you you kind of back where you started from you don't now, know who so to we're, believe yeah we're dealing here with a, 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 almost an existential crisis mm. um can you prove anything with research no strictly speaking you can't prove something um you can uh carry out enough good research, you can understand how and why things work and why they don't work in different situations with different age groups for different types of tasks or learning and then act accordingly. That's, that's, that's what you can do. You can't prove anything with it. But we're now sitting in an in, 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 in existential crisis and that's that uh, as far, I can only speak for the Netherlands, but uh, teachers in the Netherlands don't receive the necessary training that they can read an article and judge whether or not that which is in the article um, is of any empirical, let alone practical, value. 
they haven't learned, for example, and it's not their problem, it's not their fault, I should say, it's the fault of the institutions and the amount of time that they have, they haven't learned that if they read an article that says A, based upon a, uh, a study, if there was no sufficient control group to see whether or not A was actually better than B, they can't, then the research is worthless. Mm. But they haven't been trained to understand the, the need for a control group and what a good control group looks like. Or how do you deal with the number of people who have um, stopped during the study and that it's not the same in both the intervention group and the control group. I know, I realize I'm getting very technical. I am a cognitive psychologist. So please forgive that uh, 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 for me. But um, if you asked me to um, evaluate an article on quantum chemistry and whether or not what that person, that, that quantum chemist or the quantum mechanical physicist has done is worth anything, all I can say is I have no idea because I have no idea of the methodology the, the system, system of doing quantum mechanical research. And teachers have not learned how to uh, separate the wheat and the chaff with respect to the type of research that's being done. I, I, I often give an example of um, research done to prove, for example, that uh, uh, discussing with each other your prior knowledge leads to better learning. And um, one group, uh, and, and, and what they were supposed to be studying was um, the, the circulation system in uh, a human beings, so heart and lungs and arteries and veins and things like that. And one group got together and discussed with each other, um, what do we remember from high school about the circulation system? Another group got together and discussed what to remember about the uh, European Championship of 1988. That's when the Dutch won. Um, uh, and incredibly, the group that talked about the heart afterwards scored better when they were studying about the circulation system. And I say, duh, was there a control group that said that had a good video on the circulation system and how the heart and the lungs work? Or was there a, a teacher who gave a good course? And if the answer to that is no, then all you know is, oh, they learned more when they talked about the subject that was relevant than we talked about the subject that was irrelevant. But if you present it in, well, discussing in a group prior knowledge is better than, I say, but you didn't compare it with what it could have been better than. You know, um, don't compare the circuit learning about talking about the circulation system with talking about knitting patterns. Yeah, those types of things. But teachers haven't learned to understand what the difference is. So it's 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 not their fault. But we need to think about if we want teachers to make use of evidence, we have to teach them to deal with evidence. Um, uh, doctors aren't researchers 
but they've learned to deal with research literature during their study. So and there's, all, there's also, I think, better brokers of evidence in other fields. There's oh, better yeah, mediators of evidence. Yeah, and that's, yeah that, I think that's one of the things that's changed in the last, just in the very recent past, that you've now got these kind of very effective brokers of research, mediators between uh, researchers and teachers. Yeah, because it's, it's a big ask, isn't it, Carl? For, for speaking as a teacher yourself, to, um, to, to expect teachers with all the other things going on, like their priority being uh, like planning lessons, but then also all the pastoral things, the relationship issues and all that kind of th things with students. Then on top of that, they've got to be research aware, but then also informed enough and able enough to be able to take a piece of research and critically evaluate it. Is, exactly. is, that, is that too big an ask, Carl? No, well, I, I, don't, I think essentially the dilemma that you referenced a minute ago is really well, the best example of that is Niels Bohr, his assertion that um, the opposite of a falsehood is a truth, but sometimes the opposite of a profound truth is another profound truth. And having that kind of cognitive dissonance and getting to a point where, as you say, you read one paper and you go, well, that's really, you know, attractive evidence. That's really fascinating. And then there's another paper and you go, well, that's almost saying the opposite thing, but actually, uh, you know, it, it's very, very different. I, I, and again, we're living in a time where, you know, the government in this country were taking the, there's been a lot of talk about science recently to talk about how to deal with this virus and what we should be doing and conflicting evidence has come and different approaches have, have, have been put in place and it, it really illustrates how difficult it is when you deal with evidence but there are certain things where you get this independent convergence and we see it you know for example if, if we were to go back 150 years ago there was no clear picture of how to deal with, for example, post-operative infections. You know, people, there was, a, there was a radical debate about, you know, should you wash your hands, should you wash your instruments? There was some kind of ne nebulous talk about, well, there might be this thing called bacteria. There might be this germs, that, and lots of people say, oh, that's nonsense, that's ridiculous, that's outrageous. But gradually, the evidence accumulates, and you get this... Um, the sense of convergence on a particular set of ideals. And I think we're, we're we will move to that in, in education. And, you know, even, even just now, Craig, we were talking about things 10 years ago and, and, and saying, well, that, that was ridiculous and that was outrageous. And, you know, for example, there's very, very few teachers now who would take into account the different learning styles of pupils when they're designing in, uh, instruction or designing lessons. Mm. And that's not something you could say five years ago, ten years ago. That's right. So I think what there's the, the sort of two pro, sort of there's two elements to it. The first is a kind of a collective uh, kind of palate cleansing, where there's a kind of a collective clearing of the throat, and out of that comes your learning styles and your brain gym and all that kind of stuff. I think we're now past that phase, mm. and we're into the more difficult phase where we're trying to create some set of convergence or some set of uh, and what it has to be is persuasive. It can't be uh, adversarial. It needs to kind of bring people along. I think, you know, saying to um, teachers, you know, th this is this is this is the law and this is what you must obey. That's not going to work. What, what we should be doing is empowering teachers and persuading them 
and saying, well, look, there is collective evidence about this. And, you know, what you what you see with people who I think are really effective. I mean, I don't know if you like, you know, Paul's a great example on this, because if you've ever seen Paul speak, he takes extremely complex things and and puts them in a way that the, the, the kind of beginning first year teacher can understand and appreciate. And, and we need more of that kind of stuff. We need more kind of um, appealing to people's common sense. And oh, I almost think that when you see so people like Paul explaining things, Dylan Williams, another one, um, they're, they're almost like lawyers. They're almost like they're making a legal case. Yes. And yes. they're not, they're sort of, they're, they're using logic and evidence to sort of put forward this extremely persuasive case. And that's, I think, the, the, the future and the way forward. You know, throwing evidence and research papers at people, that's, that's the kind of the, the, the second layer. The first layer needs to be persuasive, appealing to people's better interests, trying to kind of create this sense of convergence. And I, th- I think we're well on the way to that. Fascinating. Superb. Well, final question for, for both of you. I'll come to you first, Paul, with this one. Um, what's an example of something important that you've changed your mind about? Oh, I um, please forgive me that I'm going to say this, but um, I used to think that people made rational decisions based upon facts. <laughs> and what I've changed my mind about is that I've noticed that people don't do that. <laughs> is this just generally in life or any any particular uh, areas? In any event, in my area in education, in um, instructional design. I have the idea that people make very irrational decisions based upon gut feelings, their um, uh, own and is one experiences, uh, folk wisdom, um, uh, uh, things that sound good, and that um, rationality often doesn't play a role in this and it's um, it sounds very pessimistic or cynical to say it but it's it's kind of like that when economists realized that economy is based upon making rational decisions but people don't make rational economic decisions, and they came up with behavioral economics. Um, I have this idea that I've reached the point where I've realized that rationality is not um, the most important thing when people make decisions with respect to teaching, education, and learning. Fascinating. Fascinating. Wow. Um, Carl, how about yourself? Anything important you've changed your mind about? Um, uh, I'd say probably, well, I'd say the major one would be technology. So I'd say, you know, to refer back to what I said earlier, but I think that when, when you start teaching, it's a bit like when you're, um, when you're 18 or 19 and you read the secret or something like that, or, you know, the Celestine prophecy or some kind of new age bullshit book. 
and you you think to yourself, oh, I didn't know we did, could say that on on. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh well, well, actually, yeah, Craig can beep that out. But actually, that is, I believe, an academic term. Uh, I think uh, there is an academic paper on that. Anyway, um, you you get this profound sense of oh, that's the answer. Mm. You know, anyone who's got a kind of a a a, a broad lack of knowledge. You, you come across something and you think, well, in the absence of any other knowledge or any other doubt, this is it. This is definitely it. And I think probably when I began teaching, there was things where the, the general feeling at the time was one that um, was one that was about sort of constructivism. And there's actually a really good point made in, in the, the paper I think it might be in the AFT article, which is that when you go back to look at the 1960s and the ideas of discovery learning, I think, so Jerome Bruner and his ideas about discovery learning in the early 60s, it made perfect sense. It made perfect sense at the time because there wasn't evidence about the architecture of the brain in the same way as that, you know, astrology made perfect sense in the Middle Ages. It was, it, you know, this was one of our early attempts at cosmology. It's our early attempt at um, philosophy and explaining the universe. And so our early attempts at explaining how learning happens, uh, it, it doesn't mean people are evil or they're wrong or they're terrible or anything like that. It just, it, it's, it's an evolution of things. And, and so I probably thought when I first started teaching, well, you know, learning is really about kind of a dialogic sense, which in a way it is, but um the idea that you know knowledge is socially constructed well you know wh wh what's the ultimate form of, of social construction other than social networks um and so it seemed kind of sensible and logic and, and, and rational so in my early years of teaching i was quite interested in getting technology in the classroom mm. um and then because i think when you start teaching you're you, it's all about the gimmicks it's all about the yes. shortcuts it's all about you know what are the quick wins all that kind of stuff when actually teaching, I think, is a lot, you know, if you go back to the music analogy and Bob Dylan's quote, three chords and the truth, just if you, when you strip it down, it has to have something that's very, very real to it. It has to have, and, and most of the time that comes down to the teacher's subject knowledge and the way they explain things, I think, and the relationship that they foster and the atmosphere that they foster in the classroom. And everything else is just a long way downstream. And technology now for me, it's a useful tool and it can have its place, sure. But more than anything, I want in an English lesson, I want students to really engage with the written word and to think in beautiful ways without any form of distraction. So that's been the thing, I suppose, that's changed for me. Fantastic. Superb. Well, to uh, to bring things to a close, Paul, I'm going to hand over to you for your, your big three. Now, Carl's already had, had a shot at this, so it's, it's all down to you, Paul. Um, what three websites, blog posts, whatever you want, would you choose to direct our listeners to? And I'll put links to these in the show notes. OK. Um, thankfully, I was prepared for this. Um, uh, as people who follow me on Twitter know, I'm an Adam Boxer fanboy. <laughs> so uh, I would say a chemical orthodoxy from Adam. The new, what do you like? What do you like about Adam's work, Paul? Um, that he's incredibly lucid to the point and gives incredibly good tips as to how you can make use of um, 
evidence-informed ideas within your teaching. Um, he's uh, uh, he, co- he 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 forms a perfect combination of um, the theory on the one hand and the praxis on the other hand. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I this, completely agree. The second is cog psi psi of cog psi squared. I'm a cognitive scientist, but it's by a group of people who are uh, prying, trying to tell us what cognitive science can mean for science education. I mean, I am and I remain an ex-math and sciences teacher. The first is a chemical orthodoxy. The second is cognitive science in science. Um, and uh, the third is uh, a blog that I write with Miriam Nalen. It's my own, so I'm now being uh, very, um, uh, what, what, what's the word, egotistical in this. <laughs> but that's uh, three-star learning experiences in which we try to explain to both teachers and um, learning developers um, how they can become three-star Michelin chefs with respect to instructional and learning design. Fantastic. They're a superb, superb choice of uh, blogs there. And I should say, Paul, don't worry about being egotistical. We've had some guests who've chosen three of their own works on oh, the big okay. three. I, I, I won't name any names, but listeners will be aware of who those are. Okay. Um, so <laughs> so that brings us to, to the end of this conversation. I just want to take an opportunity to, to thank you both. Firstly, obviously, for your for your time tonight. It's uh, it's, it's a late one, but it's it's been, it's been fascinating to speak to you for, for, for two straight hours here. Um, secondly, for thank you for, for for writing this book um, as I said when I was describing it it's the kind of book I can dip into but the kind of book that also opens Pandora's box and I can take it as, as deep as I want both in terms of research papers but also as you say links to podcasts to videos just to give me that that wide range of mediums to access some of these ideas so it's fantastic and also um, obviously Carl it's always a, always a pleasure to, to, to speak to you but just on, on a personal note Paul I just want to thank you as I say this as I'm sure you've heard many a time that that the, the the paper the minimal guided instruction really was a, a seminal moment for me reading uh, reading that paper and um, I've been lucky enough to hear you talk a couple of times at Research Ed National and, and a couple of other events and I've always been inspired and it's been uh, it's been a real um, privilege for me to, to have you on the podcast. Thank so, you. Um, I, I really enjoyed working on the translation of your book. Oh yes, it's of course, Dutch. of course. It, oh it, yes, uh, I've got. Um, uh, Renee uh, asked me from how do you say this. Uh, uh, term in this in this way so uh, I also read um, uh, your books on math and math teaching and math pedagogy Um, in any event the translation of it because I helped Renee uh, to uh, do the translation in any event helped him where he had problems so I must say I was also very enthusiastic about the fact that you actually even wanted to uh, uh, interview me so thank you very very much for this I was very much under the impression of of, of, of your work on uh, maths and math teaching. That's very, very kind. Thank you very much. We definitely won't cut that bit out. That's superb. <laughs> well, Paul, <laughs> Paul, Paul and Carl, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you both tonight. Okay, thank you very thank much. Thank you, Craig. It was great.
so there you have it. There was my interview with Paul Kirshner and Carl Hendrick. I really hope you enjoyed that one. I know I did. Um, it's always a bit daunting having two guests on the show at once because it's a bit weird whenever you've got, well, essentially three locations going on. We also turn the videos off um, to try and improve the, the strength of the signal to keep the audio quality um, as good as possible. And it's difficult to know who to direct the questions to and so on and so forth. And you get a lot of talking over each other or awkward pauses. But with Paul and Carl, I thought it worked really well. They're, they're clearly a dynamic duo, a very strong team who, who work incredibly well together, whether that's writing books or, as it turns out, speaking on podcasts. Um, and it, as I mentioned in the intro, um, I've, I've met Carl a, a number of times. I'm a massive, massive fan of Carl. I love hearing him speak, but I've, I've never spoken to Paul Kirshner before. I've seen him, but never quite had the courage to, to speak to him. And that's always daunting as well, interviewing somebody who you don't have an initial off off podcast relationship with for, for want of a better phrase but he couldn't have been nicer and um, god almighty when he was going through his career i'm thinking flipping heck i hope he doesn't ask me to me to do the same Qu quite some cv is he's compiled there but again he was um an, an incredibly just pleasant person and obviously incredibly knowledgeable and a pleasure to interview um so takeaways First thing to say is I'm I'm rapidly ticking off my podcast guest book bucket list. Um, Paul was on there, um, and now tick big tick next to him. Who's left? Well, um, Willingham's the big one. Dan Willingham. Now is I've spotted on Twitter he's writing a, a follow up version, kind of version two of, of Why Don't Students Like School? Could that be my way of getting him on? I don't know. Fingers crossed. Uh, John Sweller's obviously um, up there as well with with cognitive load theory, and then we have Joe Bowler. Now, I'm not going to name any names, but one of those three hasn't responded to any of my emails, but uh, we'll move swiftly on from that. And the other thing I wanted to uh, talk about in these takeaways is, is that learning is a change in long-term memory. Now, I know um, Dr. Helen Williams isn't going to be happy with me for, for not pushing Paul um, enough on this, but the reason is, and I'm going to be honest here, um, I think it's an incredibly useful phrase to work with whether you agree with whether there is actually a thing called working memory and a thing called long-term memory whether you believe in them in a biological sense and I take Alan's point that how do you know if something's actually transferred from working memory to, to long-term memory but let, let, let me say this here's why I think it's a useful phrase and it's as simple as this it reminds me of the need to test my students to see if they can retrieve what I've taught them because that was my biggest failing as a teacher, and I had many. My biggest failing of a teacher for many, many, many years was that I thought my kids had learned something at the time because they could do it at the time. So I teach a lesson, and I drive home that night thinking, wow, what a great teacher I am, box that one off. And then because I wouldn't test my kids again or be systematic by testing them to see if they could retrieve it, they'd forget it so rapidly. It hadn't transferred into long-term memory. If kids can't produce what they've been taught... They've not learned it. For me, it's as simple as that. And that may be the most obvious thing you've ever heard in your life, but it escaped me for 12 years, you know. I was just putting all my effort into getting things into kids' head, heads and not enough effort into ensuring that they could get things out again. We spoke about this when Daisy Christodoulou came on the show um, for the second time to talk about her book um, and how she believes that that's the purpose or one of the main purposes of EdTech is to help students get good at getting things out because EdTech has a massive advantage over human beings in the sense that the technology can come up with a schedule, a retrieval schedule. It can be smart in the sense that not every student needs the same retrieval schedule. Some students are going to need to focus on retrieving certain topics more than other, other students are and, and so on and so forth. But 
again, as a teacher, too much of my emphasis went into the teaching and not enough went into the making sure my kids can retrieve it. And whether it's Bjork's work that you buy into, whether it's talking about the forgetting curve, retrieval strength, storage strength, there's no doubt in my mind that the more I can challenge my students to retrieve what they've been taught over long periods of time, the more it sticks in there and therefore the more they've learned. So that's what it means to me. Learning is a change in long-term memory. If kids can't remember it, they've not learned it. And um, the second thing I wanted just to talk about briefly was I absolutely loved Carl's point about what technology cannot do. And that is, and I'm not going to say it as beautifully or eloquently as Carl did, but it can't re reproduce that spark of magic that happens in the classroom when you've got a teacher working with kids. And I've been lucky enough, and I'm sure all listeners have, to have experienced that a, a number of times where you, just, you can just feel it. You can just feel something special is happening in that lesson. This is pathetic, you know. I'm actually getting a bit a few goosebumps here when I'm, when I'm talking about this. Um, it's just, you're just on a roll. The flow's there, the kids, and you can just see it starting to sink in with the students and they're buying into it and you're responding and they're coming back and so on. Now, it doesn't happen all the time and there are lots of drawbacks to that. There are lots of drawbacks to having one teacher and 30 kids versus, you know, a really smart system that, as I mentioned before, can tailor make um, schedule, uh, schedule different topics at different times to different students and so on. But what that system can never do is, is reproduce that magic. And that's why teaching will always have a place. And as I say, to refer back to this, the, my most recent interview with Daisy Christodoulou, we spoke about this, that, that AI or machine learning or whatever you want to call it will never replace teachers in that sense because, and we, did, we didn't talk about this with Daisy, but now I'm having listened to Carl there, I'm thinking one of the, one of the reasons is teachers will always have a place is teachers can generate that magic that, that AI can, can never generate. So I thought that was interesting and worth reflecting on. And the final thing is, I just wanted to um, pick out a paper myself from um, Carl and Paul's book, How Learning Happens. Um, it's a wonderful book. It really is um, really nicely laid out. You can just dip in, dip out um, at any stage. Um, I loved Carl and Paul's choices, but I just wanted to, to pick one out. This is um, chapter 15 or number 15. It's called Activities That Give Birth to Learning. <laughs> now You can probably tell from the, the title of this paper why I've gone for this. The paper's called The Concept of Mathemag... No, it'd be help if I could say it. The Concept of Mathemagenic... Mathemagenic? activities. I've picked it because it has something like maths in there. But I love the quote that, that opens the paper. You can lead a horse to water, but the only water that gets into his stomach is what he drinks. And the point from this is, well, well the takeaway that I took away from this is that as teachers, we can, we can have all the bells and whistles. We can think we've designed the absolute ideal lesson, the perfect scenario, everything's right. But the only thing that's going to determine whether kids take things in and learn from them is what they do with what we present them. What do they themselves do with what we what we say, what stimulus we give them, how we orchestrate discussions and so on. It's down to the students. And if I just read the, the takeaways, and I'll just read these um, verbatim from, from the book, um, from this paper... I think it, I think really powerful points. So here we go. Um, learning is a combination of object orientation, selection, translation, and processing that takes place in the learner. A teacher can try to make the learning objects available, but what is learned depends on what the learner does with them. Again, such a simple point, but so easy to overlook. I used to think that teaching was about me, the teacher, but it's so obvious that the learners are, are, are the key to this. And next takeaway. 
The lessons that you prepare can be very sophisticated, but if your students don't do anything with them or do the wrong thing with them, e.g. memorize instead of apply, then they won't learn properly. Third takeaway, with good use of questions, learning objectives and assignments, you can steer your students' learning in the direction that you want, e.g. to learn facts or to apply knowledge. Notice that though, steer. You can't guarantee it, but you can. it's, it's, a, it's a best bet. You can improve the chances. And fourth takeaway, certain ambient factors such as appropriate student behavior, classroom climate and the appropriate use of technology are critical to stimulating, here's that word again, mathematic activities. Get these right first. So start with the simple things. Don't start coming in with this big sophisticated idea of how you're going to teach if the kids aren't going to be listening because they're messing around behavior. So get those seating plans right. Get get the routines established. Something we spoke about early on. God, this podcast has been going for years now. One of my first ever interviews with Bruno Reddy. And check it out. It's, it's one of my favorites. He spoke about how he wouldn't do any teaching whatsoever until he'd established routines. So the two or th- first two or three lessons with a class could be spent getting the kids to practice lining up, handing books out, collecting books in, knowing how to respond when you ask a question, knowing what to do when another child's speaking, knowing how to set work out and so on. Get those routines right and then that's going to increase the chances of the students thinking about the right thing. And the final takeaway from from the paper, for those training teachers or line managing teachers, it's helpful to focus less on teaching and more on the overall conditions that the teacher has set that engender student learning. So there's just an example of how you can just dip into a paper that catches your eye. If you want to, you can go straight to the takeaways at the end. And then if if that stimulates something, go back in, flick back earlier on in the chapter and dig a bit deeper into it. It's it's, it's a really, really great book. I, I wholeheartedly recommend it. So um, that's that. Um, as I say, um, I made the decision to still release some of these so-called normal episodes with, with guests um, as, alongside my Teaching From Home series. I, I hope that's a, a wise decision. I've, I've no idea. But again, CPD's got to continue. And um, I, I thought this episode in particular was, was relevant um, for this time um, that we find ourselves in. But, but hopefully for it's, it's evergreen when when things return back to normal. There's a, I, I think there'll be so many takeaways from, from this one. So all that remains for me to do is to thank podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. A massive thank you to my two guests, Paul Kirshner and Carl Hendrick for giving up their time and for writing a wonderful book. And a big, 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 big thank you to you, my lovely loyal listeners, for keeping tuning into these episodes in your thousands. I'll be honest, I'm (laughs) a bit knackered at the moment. I'm looking, me and my wife are both working full-time from home and we've got our little boy, um, Isaac, and we're we're juggling looking after him in between meetings and trying to do our work and working in the evenings and working in the weekends. And it's hard. And it's temptation to drop these podcasts because... um, Again, they're, um, they're not something that I kind of get paid for aside from, from sponsorship and, and so on. Um, and they take a lot of time to do the recording, the producing, the editing and so on and so forth. But um, it's the fact that people keep listening to these and telling me that they're useful that makes me think, no, it's, it's, it's worth my time. So I'm going to try my best to keep, keep the schedule up um, with these. Anyway, all that remains for me to say now um, is the obvious. You just stay safe in these tricky times and take care of yourself, take care of others. Let's get through this and then we can all get back to normal or whatever normal will look like then. Anyway, you take care of yourselves and bye for now.